Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. When it comes to having conversations with other people, there is no greater opportunity to have a really spirited discussion than to consider talking about religion. When people speak about religion, when they speak about theology, when they talk about their God or somebody else's God, there are numerous opportunities for discussions, for disputes, for disagreements. There's a lot of opportunity for that because of the different opinions that people have about God. There are differences of interpretations from the scriptures. There are differences of interpretations with regards to what the Lord Jesus said, why he said the things that he did, why he did the things that he did, the miracles that he performed, why he gave the messages that he did to the individual people that he had exposure to, and how they might be applicable to our lives today. These are opportunities for a great deal of dispute. And when there is a dispute... People normally settle these disputes by just simply going off by themselves or looking for other people who are in agreement with them, who believe what they believe, and then they form a fellowship of some kind that can often evolve into a church. And that's how churches generally get started, is that people have a common belief system with regards to a certain doctrine or a certain concept or a certain doctrine or a certain common theology. And with these commonalities, they are able to establish their own congregations, which then have their own congregational leaders and administrative activities and other things that go along with what you would expect to see in a regular church environment. This is very common. It's a very common experience. So when it comes to the study of the scriptures and it comes to the study of God, these theologies, which are effectively just studies of God, theology, the study of God, people do not always agree with regards to these theologies. And because of those disagreements, there's always going to be some sense of contention between people. One of the most common disputes that people have has to do with the subject of the Trinity. The Trinity is a very popular topic when it comes to the study of God, because people look at it truly as the description of the very nature of God, who he really is as a person, or more specifically, in many cases, who he is as three different persons. And people really do consider this to be a very important subject, to the extent that if you do not believe what they believe with regards to this, they could call you a heretic and tell you that you are definitely going to hell. Regardless of what you believe, if you do not agree with them, then you are definitely going to go to hell because you do not really believe in the God that they believe in. You do not believe in the God of the scriptures as they would say that. This is a very big opportunity for dispute. 
dispute amongst people, a very big opportunity to have contention, a very big opportunity for people to have disagreements that could lead them in two completely different directions to the extent that they would never want to experience any fellowship with one another ever again, that one person may accuse someone else of believing in a God that does not exist, and another may do the same, and these things just simply happen. And the subject of the Trinity is without doubt Without question, one of these topics, one of these studies that definitely leads to a great deal of contention. Now, I have great confidence that in this broadcast, I will not settle this issue. I have a great deal of confidence that I will not give a complete and perfect representation or explanation of this subject and make it totally clear so that everybody agrees with me and then no one else will ever in the history of humanity from this day forward ever have an argument with regards to this topic. I certainly do not expect that to happen. In fact, I strongly expect that many people will express their disagreement with me and do so very aggressively only because that is my experience when discussing certain subjects, this being one of them. And so I fully expect that, and I simply understand that this is going to be one of those subjects that just simply never really gets resolved because of a great deal of confusion that exists and because of the lack of information that we truly have within the scriptures to really make it clear. And so given all of that, I'm going to go ahead and make an attempt to give an explanation with regards to the subject of the Trinity. However, I am also going to say right from the start that I do not expect this presentation to be a complete solution to the conflicts that are occurring. I sincerely believe that the conflicts will continue. I am only throwing in my contribution to this particular topic, which of course may seem a little bit unique in comparison with what others teach and what others believe as many of the topics that I cover simply are. When it comes to the subject of the Trinity, the dispute really has to do with some very legitimate concerns. There is no question about the legitimate concerns that people have. The concern has to do with the distinction between two important subjects. The first subject has to do with the oneness of our God, that he is one God, he does not share power with anyone, and he is distinct. This is an important subject, an important thing to understand with regards to the God of the Bible, that he is one God, there is only one God, without question, and there is no other. But the other subject has to do with the relationship that appeared to exist between the Lord Jesus when he walked here on this earth, his relationship with the Father in heaven, and of course the dynamic interaction that was taking place with the Holy Spirit, that there is the appearance that there are three distinct persons that are described in the Gospels, in the scriptures as a whole, but it appears that there is a distinction, that there are distinctions between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so this becomes the argument. How do we reconcile the oneness of God and yet the collective distinction of apparently differing personalities or different persons that are described collectively as God also? It's a very difficult subject and can easily become very convoluted because there doesn't seem to be any way to reconcile those concepts. How do you have one person and then you have three persons? How does that happen? How does that exist? And we have available to us a significant amount of information, books, messages, sermons, letters, articles, 
all kinds of information available out there. Many people who are wanting to make their contributions to try to describe how do we reconcile these differences? How do we reconcile the differences that appear to be in the scriptures? Because we know that there is no contradiction in the scriptures. It's clear, it's obvious that this is the testimony of our God, and our God does not live in a contradictory state, and he does not teach us things or tell us things that are contradictory in nature. And so if there is any confusion that exists, it is only because of us, obviously not because of our God, and it is because of our limitations, not because of God's failure to reveal to us who he is, his very person, his very identity. But it's very important to acknowledge the truth that there are some difficulties, there are some distinct difficulties, and when we study this subject at length, again, there are many people who have great confidence, great confidence that they have an answer, that they have a solution, and they feel very comfortable with their solution. But that doesn't mean that they agree with everyone else who feels the same way. And so because of that, this subject is filled with a lot of dispute and with a lot of contention. But I will, of course, make my contribution to this great argument with hopes to perhaps bring some clarity with regards to this subject. Now, when it comes to this subject, what usually happens is that people attempt to give their full, complete explanation the one that satisfies them to someone else. And when they give this explanation, sometimes people respond and say, I understand, I understand precisely what you're saying. This does not happen very often. But on occasion, it does happen. People will say, I agree, I understand, it is clear, I no longer have any confusion. It doesn't happen very often, but it does occasionally happen. When it does not happen, however, the usual response is that this may not be something that you can comprehend, but it is something that you had better apprehend, because if you don't apprehend it, well, then you could lose your soul, you could lose your salvation, you may not go to heaven because you really don't believe in the true and living God. Whether you understand him or not no longer becomes the issue, but the issue is that, is that you better believe what I believe, because if you don't, or if you believe something that is different, you are going to go to hell. That is what people teach. This is what people say about this subject. And I want you to know up front that I am not going to say that. I understand fully that we do not have to understand everything about our God in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, in order to be born again of the Spirit of God. I understand that. The gospel is very simple, and if a person believes the gospel, then that is their salvation. However, this is what many people do believe, and they do sincerely teach. I simply am not one of them. Because of the difficult nature of this theology, sometimes people will also default to something that sounds kind of like this. They say, well, it may not be something that you can comprehend, but it's definitely something that you have to apprehend. Again, this is a very convoluted thought that apparently satisfies many people. I personally am not one of them. I do not want to encourage anyone to try and apprehend something that they do not comprehend. And yet in the midst of that, people are still very aggressive about this. 
to the extent that if you try to understand any further than that, then you might very well lose your mind. But if you do not believe in it, then you could lose your soul. These are the kinds of explanations that people give in default when they are not able to successfully convey what they believe to someone else, what they believe is mandatory to believe if a person is going to retain, sustain, or even perhaps obtain their salvation. These are the kinds of positions that many people take. I myself am definitely not one of them. I sincerely believe that if there is something that I do not understand, then I am either going to pursue my best efforts to try and understand these things, either through an analysis of the scriptures or, more importantly, through prayer to ask the Lord to illuminate my mind and to illuminate my understanding and so I can know who he is. But I certainly am not going to believe in something that I do not comprehend, and I'm certainly not going to apprehend something that I cannot explain. These are very dangerous conclusions that I certainly do not want to encourage, but many people do certainly believe this kind of stuff, and they live their lives with these kinds of things, and that's fine. If a person wants to do that, that's okay with me. I'm not going to argue with them about it. However, for myself, I do need something much more concrete to believe in if I am going to depend on it in terms of my understanding of who my God really is. Now again, the argument has to do with some very legitimate passages in the scriptures. There are some passages in scriptures that are very difficult to understand, and because of that, it's very easy to come to different conclusions. But let me go ahead and start in Matthew chapter 28. In Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 19, it is written, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. There's another passage found in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Again, in John chapter 17, between verses 1 and 26, there is an extensive discussion about the love that all three persons share with one another, that the Father speaks to the Son, and the Son speaks to the Father, and they all seek the glorification of each other. With passages like this, there is the appearance that there is definitely multiple persons who are actively participating and actively involved in a dynamic relationship with each other, and yet they are all identified as God. We have many scriptures that do clearly show that Jesus is God, that the Holy Spirit is God, that the Father is God, the Father in heaven. And so when we look at passages such as this and we see the interaction that is taking place, it's very easy for us to look at that and say, well, these are distinct persons, distinct personalities, distinct beings in effect, because they are obviously interacting with each other. That is what we are able to understand. In the finite minds that we have, when we see one person talking with someone else, or we see one being speaking with someone else, actively involved with someone else, then we assume that there are distinct personalities involved, that there are differences of beings that are interacting with one another. When it comes to baptizing people in the name of one person and then in the name of another person and then in the name of another person, 
then we would look at that in the minds that we have and say there are definitely some distinct persons. There's no question about there being passages in scriptures that make a distinction, a clear distinction between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. However, having said that, there are some other passages that are very difficult to reconcile in light of passages such as these. Consider, for example, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 8. This is Isaiah chapter 44, verse 8. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. That was the testimony of Isaiah, of the testimony of God, what he said, that there is no other God. He does not know of any other God besides himself. Also in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, this is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If he is one, then how can he be three? That wouldn't make any sense. That would be a contradiction if we were to look at it from that particular perspective. If we were to look at it from the perspective of God being many persons, and yet in the scriptures he is clearly saying that he is one person, then how can we have multiple persons and one person at the same time? That doesn't make any sense. That is the challenge. That is the difficulty in terms of reconciling the differences and why there is conflict why there is a great deal of dispute with regards to this subject. Consider also John chapter 20, verses 27 to 28. This is John chapter 20, beginning in verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Again, also in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter wrote, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. How can you have one God who is identified as the Father and also have a God who is identified as the Lord Jesus who definitely was a person who walked and talked and ate and drank and worked and interacted with lots of people. He even died on the cross. How could he be God if there is only one God? Titus chapter 2 verse 13. This is Paul's letter to Titus chapter 2 beginning in verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit is definitely God. So these are the difficulties. This is the question. How do we reconcile these differences? How do we do it? Well, there are many attempts that people have made to try and reconcile the differences, the distinctions that exist in various scriptures. As I read in Matthew chapter 28 and 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and John chapter 17, there is obviously a set of scriptures, a collection of scriptures that speak of the uniqueness and the interactive involvement of multiple persons that are identified as God. So also in these other passages in Isaiah and in John chapter 20, 2 Peter chapter 1, Titus chapter 2, there are passages here that we can find, that we can read, and we can study and see that clearly there is only one God. How do we reconcile the two? 
Well, many people have certainly given great effort and great attempts to try and reconcile these differences. They normally start with illustrations. Illustrations are pretty good. Some of the illustrations that people use are better than others, but let me give you an example of an illustration that someone will try to use in order to explain the differences and give an explanation with regards to how we might be able to reconcile the confusion that apparently exists. Now, again, I'm not wanting to say that there's any contradiction whatsoever. What I am wanting to say is that there is a lack of understanding that we have. And what it's going to take in order to resolve this lack of understanding, I honestly don't know because there still is a lot of differences that exist out there. I am only going to be presenting my opinion with regards to this subject, with hopes that I might contribute in some way so that I can resolve some of the issues that do exist and perhaps bring about greater clarity as as best that I can. But consider this illustration. Consider the illustration of an egg. An egg is composed of three parts. It has a shell. It has a yolk and it has a white. And so, what part of it is the egg? Is the shell the egg? Is the yolk the egg? Is the white the egg? Are any of those parts any less egg than the other parts? No, they are all collectively an egg. And so, you could look at the Trinity in that sense. You could say that you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are all collectively the same part. And given that they are the same being in essence, then we can accept and recognize that it is okay for there to be three different distinct persons as part of the Trinity, and say at the same time that it is the same God composed of three distinct persons. That's one attempt that people make. But this again, it depends on your perspective. Some people would look at that and say, "Well, certainly that makes perfect sense." I can say that it makes perfect sense if I was to take the egg and throw it down on the ground. If I threw it down on the ground, then obviously it would all be an egg. The shell would be crushed in with the yolk and the white, and everything would be convoluted, and it certainly would be all one egg. If I throw it on the ground, it certainly becomes more clear that it is all one egg. But I could certainly understand that even though I didn't throw it on the ground and is perhaps still sitting on the counter or in a carton, that it still is legitimately an egg that way. Also, that's one way that I suppose you can look at it. However, if you're cooking, then you might only want to use parts of the egg. You might look at the eggshell and say that it is totally useless. We don't want to eat the eggshell, and so we dispose of that. And there are occasions when we might want to use only the egg yolk or only the egg white. It depends on what it is that we're cooking. And so there are times when we would want to use one part of the egg versus another, or never use another part. So these are the kinds of things that people start thinking about. And when they do that, they lose sight of the reality that there is still only one God, and that the illustration is an attempt to try to explain. The identity of our God, or His very nature, and yet because of the finite example that we have, some people might say, "Oh, yeah, I get it," and they can go with that, and they can be at peace, and that is just fine. But there are other people who will expand on that even more, and then become either more confused or more uncertain. Or they may also just decide no longer to spend any more time on the subject and just say, "Well, okay, it sounds like a good illustration. I'll just go with that and try to use that as I can." And perhaps somebody will apprehend that, even though they can't fully comprehend it. At least it's a good try. Given that, it is a good try. But again, as I was explaining at the beginning of this broadcast, we do not want to say that a person is not going to enter into the kingdom of God; that they are going to go to hell if they don't understand the egg illustration. That is definitely not acceptable, as far as I can tell, with regards to the subject of the gospel or the subject of salvation.
But the important thing that I really want to mention with regards to this egg illustration is that it depends on your perspective. It depends on the person's perspective who is hearing that particular illustration or the perspective of the person who is giving that particular illustration. It depends on whether or not you look at the egg as an entire entity in and of itself or if you look at it from the perspective of a cook who's going to make some food. It really just depends on a person's perspective. I personally look at this subject from two individual perspectives. It depends on whether or not you look at it from God's perspective looking down to us or our perspective looking up to him. This becomes the actual conclusion to this particular issue. It depends on how you look at it. In one case, the illustrations certainly do make a clear point. And in another case, they make absolutely no sense whatsoever. And so that is why I can easily talk about this subject for an hour and still go nowhere, still lead absolutely nowhere and leave a person with as much or even more confusion than when I started because there is no clear definition given to us in the scriptures. And so this leaves us in a situation where it just depends on how you look at the issues at hand. And so I'm going to address this subject from that point of view. In the midst of that perspective, in the midst of that point of view, the one thing that I want you to really keep in mind is that we only have one God. Now, there are many people who sincerely believe that God is composed of three distinct persons, and there are other people who will look at that and say, that is definitely not talking about one God. As soon as you use the word person or personality or anything that sounds like that, then you are no longer speaking of one God. And so again, that is a question that gets answered by the perspective of the individual who is addressing it at that moment. Perspective is everything when you consider this subject. But the one thing that you do not want to do, the one thing that is definitely a lie of the devil, is to say that there are three gods. And people know that. That's perfectly obvious in the scriptures. But the problem is, is that indirectly, because of what they do believe, they do in some ways actually believe that there are three gods. In effect, there are many people who will swear to no end, to the grave. They will be burned to the stake if necessary. They will publicly proclaim that they do not believe in three gods. However, because of their description, the way that they believe in the Trinity, by default, they're never going to be able to convince anybody else of that. They're going to be convincing other people that, in truth, they do believe in three gods, and so in reality, they're just simply confused. That's what other people see in those who proclaim the Trinity from that perspective. But again, it depends on the perspective of the speaker and the perspective of the hearer. But this is the conflict. Are there three gods or are there not? And is the Trinitarian doctrine, is it of the oneness of God or is it truly tritheism? This is the issue at hand. Is it tritheism or is it a Trinitarianism that is just simply a way of explaining our perspective of how we see the oneness of our Creator. This is a very difficult subject, but I will continue with it in the next broadcast. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. 
That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net.